Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Brad Stolberg. Brad is the author of the new book, The Practice of Groundedness. And in this conversation, we touched on the practice of groundedness a little bit, but we also talked about Brad's journey in depth and in detail. We went from the most important values he talks about and are important to him to the surprising findings he found about his new book to endurance sports and why he even got into them in the first place. We also went deep towards the end of this episode on Brad's journey with OCD, why it's not what most people think of when they think of OCD and how his therapist has played such a critical role in his life. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda. Always love hearing from people who listen to the podcast, so would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, and without further ado, let's get into this episode with Brad Stolberg. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Brad Stolberg, thank you for coming on the podcast. Really excited to dive into your story and dive into who you are as a person. From looking at you and from looking at you from the external, we have so many similarities and so many mutual points of interest that I think this is going to be a tremendous conversation. Yeah, I can't wait to dive in. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So I figured we'd start at the top, meaning the top of your Twitter bio, which says tweets on human flourishing. What does it mean for a human to flourish? Do well and be well. That is my my quick answer. That's my top line answer if we're starting at the top. Uh, breaking that down a bit, I think that the doing well is acting authentically in alignment with your values out in the world. And then I think that the being well is a sense of fulfillment, contentment, wholeness, groundedness that all that doing emerges from. And I think that if your being is out of whack, then your doing is going to be out of whack. And if your doing is out of whack, then your being will be out of whack. So I view these two things as constantly reinforcing each other. Do you set aside time every week, every month, every year to go over your values specifically? Because they can change, right, as you grow? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I try to do that at least annually, if not twice a year. Um, it's a huge part of my coaching practice to work with clients on defining their values and then equally as important, the practices that they can show up and, and again, back to doing that they can do day in and day out that I'm kind of always thinking about this stuff too. Um, so you could argue that at least once a week I'm refining how I think about my own values. Um, but formally I try to do it once a year at least. Yeah. So what are the most important values to you right now? So it's funny. I actually just went, um, I went through this exercise only about two months ago and everything for me ladders up to life and love. And that very much mirrors the being and the doing, at least in, in, in my brain. So the love is the being it's being present. It's trying to gain wisdom, to learn, um, 
to really be there to hold space for the people that you care about. And then the life is the doing. So that is showing up and taking productive action day in and day out and engaging in life. I don't want to be in a monastery for the next 30 years, just focused on being, but I don't want to get so caught up in the day-to-day frenetic energy of living in the 21st century that I'm in complete doing mode. Um, So for me, again, being, doing, love, life, they balance these two things out. Uh, Yeah. And then I guess a little less esoteric is um, presence, which I define as uh, full attention and caring for the people and pursuits I care about. Um, Wisdom, which is learning deeply from experiences and constantly acting on those learnings. And then on the doing side, health, which is sound mind and sound body. So that's the foundation that allows me to show up in the world and and keep engaging. Um, And then authenticity, uh, which for me is about um, trying to just really act on who I am and, and not have much cognitive dissonance between what's going on under the hood and then what I do externally. I'm curious. It sounds like those are really well thought out and defined, and I'm sure you spent a lot of time doing this exercise. I'm curious what the values were for you when you just did it for the first time or maybe in your mid-20s and how that has evolved. Yeah, so it's interesting that you asked that question. I'd have to go back to a notebook to get like the precise values and, and definitions. Um, but I think that you'd see a lot of alignment with where they were and where they are now. I think in my 20s, there would have been a list of probably 8 to 10, and I would have really struggled to narrow it down. And I think part of getting older is realizing that, hey, like all of this is just about like engaging in life and then having love and a loving presence and being loved and giving love. Back then, it probably would have looked like spirituality, community, family, creativity, intellect. And those are all still things that mean so much to me. I think I've just been able to simplify a little bit. And who knows, perhaps 30 years from now, I'll just look at you and be like, it's just all about love, man. Like life will get tossed to the side. Um, But yeah, I think that that's been the, the main change. I think that though it was never... Uh, a defining value. In my 20s, I was probably more focused on achievement, at least conventional achievement. Um, And now I'm much more focused on contentment and fulfillment because I've had enough of that achievement where externally you get this validation to realize that it does feel great in the moment, no doubt, but that stuff's pretty fleeting. And I'm less interested in chasing that and more interested in trying to show up and and build more enduring fulfillment. What's that Jim Carrey quote, which is like, everyone should try to get rich and famous to realize rich and famous isn't the answer, something like that? Yeah, for sure. You know, in in, in my book, The Practice of Groundedness, um, I talk about this research. uh, Tal Ben-Shahar is the name of the scientist, but he interviewed all these people that had these beautiful big goals that thought that if they only achieved this goal, then they would finally be content, be fulfilled, what have you. And what he found is that the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field. So someone would achieve that goal and then they would want more or they still wouldn't feel like they were complete or whatever it was. And he coined this the arrival fallacy. And it's this notion that we all think that we're going to finally arrive somewhere, but we're not unless like it sounds like so Zen and woo woo, but like 
this is where we are right now. So might as well try to build a process of living and daily actions that fulfill you. Because if you think that getting something out in front of you is going to be the answer, you're going to be left wanting when you get that thing. It's the truth. And it's hard though, man. It's really, really, really hard to practice. I think the key to it is getting enough stuff and achieving enough and reaching the end point of the journey enough times to realize that what you actually enjoyed about it was the process itself. At least that's been for me. Yeah. And and again, like you asked like how this has changed over the last 15, 20 years for me. Um, I think that's it. Like, it's not like I had like some kind of, um, you know, psychological bypass. It was a lot of thinking that getting my first book deal would be enough. Nope. Publishing my first book would be enough. Nope. Getting on a bestseller list would be enough. Nope. Okay. Well, I guess nothing's going to be enough in that capacity. Doing a triathlon. Nope. Got to be an Ironman. Nope. Got to win my age group. Nope. So you go through this cycle of feeling this enough times to realize that, oh, hey, like this stuff's not the answer. Now, there's some nuance here because it doesn't mean that like you shouldn't strive for these wonderful things. Just that the striving, like the texture changes. So it's less out of needing to get to the end, more out of a a true wanting or desire to get there, but a real enjoyment, as you said, for the process, for the journey. Um, The metaphor I like to use is there's two different ways to get to the peak of a mountain. And the end result is the same. You get to the peak. One way is to be so worried that you might not make it and obsessing about getting there. The other way is to really want to get there, but to truly be where you are and enjoy the view from the side and have fun camping and um, just enjoy that process. And both ways, again, you both get to the top, right? You get promoted to VP or engagement manager, or your book hits a bestseller list, or you run an Ironman triathlon, whatever it is. So the end result is the same, but the entire quality of the striving is very different if you come at it from a mindset of, I don't need, I, I'm not compelled to get this thing. I can enjoy where I am. And I do think it takes a lot of practice and a lot of failing and a lot of holding the wrong mindset and realizing that it doesn't leave you any happier. So your new book, The Practice of Groundedness, is coming out September 7th. That is in advance of when we're talking, but when it's published, people will be able to get it now. And I'm curious if there's anything that upon writing or researching the book, you were surprised to find out. Yeah, all kinds of things, man. Where should we start? <laughs> um, Let's go. Yeah, so I think the the first one that was really surprising to me is um, there's a chapter on this paradox of the best way to get where you want to go in a hurry is to be really patient. And one of the more interesting pieces of research that I came across there was that we tend to think that the most successful founders are in their early 20s. And... That's actually not true. The median age of a successful founder, judged by um, company bottom line and or IPO, is 45. And the reason for that is that most people, by the time they reach 45, have failed enough to learn from those failures, and they have more life experience, more wisdom to be able to really build a company that perhaps might be more sustainable and more enduring. So what that got me thinking is that for just about any pursuit in life, there are these two conceptual curves. One curve is what I would call raw talent. Or if you're an athlete, it's athleticism. 
if you are a creator like us, it might be cleverness um, or like cognitive flexibility, the ability to think really quickly and be quick on your feet. And on the other curve, you've got wisdom, which is learning from experience. And for any pursuit, you're at your best when these two curves cross. So there's research that shows like once you hit 25, 26, your ability to think really quick on the fly starts going downhill. So you're losing that, but what you're gaining is wisdom. So there's a reason that so many poets, when they produce their best work, are very old. Because that's like a very wisdom-dominated profession, right? That curve matters a ton. Whereas if you are a computer programmer or something like that, you might peak earlier. Because the ability to learn really fast and change your mind and switch matters a lot. So the more I think about different pursuits in life, the more I'm like, oh, like where am I at on the raw talent curve versus the wisdom curve? And when are these things going to cross? And when these things cross, that's probably when you'll do your best work. Something I think about often is our peak. And for this motiv- motivated me a lot when I was getting into fitness for the first time because I said to myself, oh, my peak will be at 30 for my fitness. And I have 10 years to work up to my peak. I don't know if that's true, but it, it led me to pursue fitness seriously because I wanted my peak to be my best. And I think having these frameworks in mind is helpful because it can serve as motivation and a sense of, okay, I, I want to see where I'm at. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And you can always build and progress and change. So, you know, for instance, in, in the example um, of fitness, a sprinter might very well peak when they're 24, 25. Because sprinting, the whole race is nine seconds. It requires very little wisdom. You just go. It is completely how athletic are you. Whereas the peak age for ultra endurance athletes tends to be between 38 and 42. And for ultra runners, it can even be older. Well, that's because if you're doing a 100 mile race, so much shit's going to go wrong. And you have to rely more on the wisdom. Athleticism is still really important. You're not going to win this thing in your 80s, but you rely more on wisdom. And I think the same thing holds true in in, in fitness and relationships and all these various areas of life that um, if we can be patient with ourselves and give that wisdom curve time to grow, our best might actually be in front of us, even though we're constantly told this story that, you know, you're only young once, youth is wasted on the young, you got to do it when you're young. Brad, so I've heard you on so many podcasts and listened to you talk about ultras and endurance racing so often but I haven't really heard you dive into why you got into it in the first place and how that journey unfolded. So I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit here, if possible. Yeah, I, um, I've never been asked this question, so there's definitely a story behind it. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're asking. I first got super into endurance sports when I was in undergraduate school. It was my senior year. And the girl that I was positive I was going to marry dumped me. And there was this huge gaping hole in my life. And I just threw myself into running. And then eventually also biking and swimming. It was a complete like analgesic numbing agent. Um, And I really liked it. And it gave me a chance to just put all my energy into something else. It was very um, self-focused. So it's like building up a sense of self after that goes to shit in a breakup like that. Um, And that's how I got into doing endurance sports. And I competed at a 
somewhat high level, by no means close to like being a professional, but a, a pretty good amateur level for about 12 years. And, and then I just got extremely tired because it demands so much training uh, and so much effort. And, um, you know, I never thought of it being full circle this way, but I ran my last marathon about three months before my wife and I's first kid was born. And um, I haven't really run since because it's just, as a new parent, it's like, I don't have the time for this. I don't have the energy. Um, physical practice is still super important to me. So now I strength train and that's what I've been doing for the last four years. Um, but yeah, that's how I got into endurance sports was just a terrible breakup and feeling like a huge hole, both like in my heart and just in how I spend my time and energy and then just burying myself in training. Did the endurance sports fill the hole inside of you? No. Of course not. I mean, I think it can help, but ultimately like what filled that hole was just time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're in undergraduate school or whatever it is, when you're 19, 20, 21, that feels like it's everything. Now, looking back on it, oh my gosh, like it would have been terrible if I would have stayed with that, that at the time girl, now woman, but like it wouldn't have made sense. But when you're in the moment, like something um, so big like that, it, it does feel like it's just crushing and everything. And I think what endurance sports did was it gave me a healthy numbing agent versus like substance use or porn addiction or something that might not have been as healthy. Something looking at your story, it seems like in the moment, I mean, we all do this. It's like when we're making a big decision, we believe that that decision will, it, it gets we put a microscope on it. Like, mm -hmm. for example, when you moved to Asheville, you were going crazy about this decision. Is this the right thing? And then with this breakup, and this happens to people when they're moving, when they're pursuing a new job. So what have you learned from making big decisions in your life that you carry with you to this day that changed you in some way? So I think that in the culture that we live in, there is such an emphasis on needing everything to be super meaningful and needing to have a narrative around meaning or growth immediately. And I think for so many of these big decisions, we feel lost. And then there's like this second layer of pain. So the first layer is the big decision. And then the second layer is, oh, and it doesn't even feel meaningful to me. Or I don't even know if I'm going to grow from it. So like it must really be jacked up. Whereas I think so much of the meaning and growth actually happens on the other side, maybe even one, two, three years removed. So I think I used to think when you're in the thick of something, well, it's got to be meaningful. Why else go through it? We got to make meaning out of it. But sometimes things just feel meaningless. You feel lost. It's just enough to show up and get through. And then the meaning comes on the other side of it. So don't put that extra burden of everything needing to be meaningful or everything needing to be a growth opportunity right away. It's okay to be totally lost and to be totally unsure. Just keep showing up and the meaning will take care of itself on its own time. And that's always happened to me. Whenever I've been through my biggest struggles, um, if I hold myself to this bar that I have to make meaning right now, I just feel worse because I can't. And I've learned to be able to accept that, hey, there are moments, there are periods in life when you don't know what's going to happen and it does feel rather meaningless. And that's okay. If you show up, it takes care of itself. Well, um, a big moment for you that certainly was meaningful, and I'm sure you knew it had some meaning, was when you got published in the Los Angeles Times, just throwing your article out as a flyer in 
2013, I believe it was. What was that experience like as someone who previously wasn't a published author? And then you all of a sudden get the Sunday edition of one of the biggest papers in the country. It was bizarre. It was super exciting, obviously. Um, I remember thinking, like turning to, you know, now wife, then girlfriend and being like, um, maybe she was my fiance by then, but like, oh, this was like really weird. Um, I was so naive about how this worked that I could really enjoy it. And what I mean by that is I wasn't trying to be a published author. I wasn't trying to write a book back then. Um, so it was really like throwing out a flyer. So when it happened, it wasn't this, again, it wasn't this arrival fallacy, like, oh, I need to be published in the Los Angeles time. Then I'll be whole only to realize that actually nothing changes. It was truly like, holy shit. Like I sent this email and they actually want to do it. Um, so that was probably like one of the most enjoyable periods that I've had as a writer because since then, now there's an expectation that I'm going to get published. And once that explication's there, well, then suddenly, like, there is some more pressure. Uh, so that was, like, very innocent and freeing. Um, yeah. It sounds like it was really pure. And when things are from that place of purity, it always produces the best outcome, at least from my perspective. Yes. And it's, there's such an important lesson in that. Because I often think that when I do something now, I should do it from the shoes that I was in, in 2013, which is like, I'm just doing this because I want to, like, I don't, I, I have no idea what the Los Angeles times readership is. I don't know anything about it. I'm writing this and I think it's good. And I think people might benefit from reading it. So let's try it. Um, and, and that ultimately as a writer means writing for myself and a few close people that I really respect and then trying not to worry about the rest. How do you do that as your reputation and you've sold more than 250,000 books, you've done incredible things. Like, how do you hold on to that naive 2013 version of yourself? First thing is it's hard and I forget all the time. And then I realize like the pain that comes with forgetting and then I re-remember. <laughs> the second thing is I talk to people who have sold a million books and I'm like, hey, like, you know, is the sky up there any clearer? And they're like, no, nah, man, like it's the same sky as you're at. So like, don't chase it. Um, and that helps with perspective. And then I think the third thing is to know that it is extremely um, just in our human nature to love status and prestige and results. And if you surround yourself with that, then it's going to happen that you get sucked into it. Whereas if you can try to rig your environment or your lifestyle to tune some of that out, you have a much better chance of doing so. So what does that mean? It could be the week of a book launch and I I'm, do this. I'm doing this with this book. I've done it with my past, at least my second book, not so much the first book. I learned from that. Um, having a set amount of time to do interviews and to allow yourself to check your Amazon sales rank and all the other stuff. But then at X o'clock, which for me tends to be around noon, I'm off to the woods for a hike. And the first 30 minutes of the hike, the first 45 even, I'm still stressed. I'm like reaching for my phone. There's no reception. I'm like, well, maybe I can like get reception through the map to check like if my, you know, my book has hit a bestseller list or whatever. Can't. About an hour into the hike, all that stuff melts away because now you're just moving your body in nature. So I don't have the willpower, I don't think anyone does, to sit in the candy store of external validation and not eat candy and get drunk on candy. So such a big part of my practice is removing myself from the candy store during those periods of time. 
It also sounds like from listening to your story that the candy store, in a sense, was living in the Bay Area. There were so much more distractions, and now you're living in Asheville, North Carolina, I believe. So has that been another way you've changed your environment to help yourself? It fits the narrative well to say yes completely. I think it's a small part of it. I think the bigger thing there was just around um, lifestyle and autonomy. So it costs like four times as much to live where we lived in the Bay Area than it does in Asheville. So you could argue that um, there was more of a need to be in the candy store simply out of like commercial success to live there. And now that pressure valve isn't as tight. Makes sense. So I want to go back to the the endurance because I I plan on running my first marathon in 12 weeks and never run long distance or anything like that. But I'm curious if you have any tips for someone who has spent 12 years stressing their body in endurance sports. So let's see. How long have you been training? I've been training now for two weeks. Oh, so you're like just hopping on the training plan. Yes, sir. So the whole thing about like the wall at mile 20 is real. So like have an expectation that you are going to feel like total shit. And then if you're pleasantly surprised, great. But if not, you won't have a freak out moment. That's thing number one. Thing number two, this is really concrete. This isn't like any big life lesson or anything. Practice eating or drinking the sports drinks or the gels that you're going to use during the race. My first marathon... I did none of that. And I'm like, oh, here's some sports drink. Boom. Oh, here's a gel. Boom. Porta potty. Next sports drink. Porta potty. So you want to train your gut to digest whatever fluid and nutrition you're taking in. I think that's really important. Um, And then pacing, 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 patience, patience, patience. How you feel at mile three is not how you're going to feel later in the race. And what you do at mile three impacts how you're going to feel later in the race. So you just have to show restraint. You have to remember that it's a long day. And um, marathon runners far wiser than me will tell you that the race doesn't really start until around mile 17, 18. I will be replaying that over and over again. And I yes, appreciate do it, man, words. especially early in the race, because you're going to be like, oh, this feels so easy. This feels so smooth. Maybe it's just my day. Or you'll get into that mindset. I'm just going to bank a little bit of time. You know, if my goal is eight minute pace or whatever your goal is, like, I'm just going to get a couple 730 miles in because it'll help me up. Like, resist that temptation. Is it's there hard. any, yeah, is there any way that's translated over and your 12 years of experience is translated over to regular life? Oh, for sure. It's all the same. I mean, that's why I love sport, whether it's endurance sport and running or strength training. I think sport is such a beautiful metaphor for life. Um so it's all translated, like this notion of pacing. If you have a big project and you go out and you just go out at the equivalent of a five-minute mile trying to crush it, you might feel really good for a few days, but then you're going to start to get pretty exhausted. So much like running a marathon or training to squat 500 pounds, like the key is consistency, good pacing, showing up, not trying to have a heroic effort, just being good enough over and over and over again. And I think that's true in writing. That's true in building a business. Um, Somewhere I'm seeing it more, particularly with a few friends that struggle in relationships, is in relationships. Do you think that relationships are going to be like that five-minute mile or whatever it is over and over again? Like you're in for a rude awakening come mile five or six. Um, Because so much of life is just like being consistently good enough over and over again. 
Um, in a sport context, it protects you from injury, right? We tend to get injured when we push too hard for too long. Um, and then outside of sport, it protects you from burnout and work. And in relationships, I think it protects you from like the curse of um, too high expectations or chasing quote unquote perfect. Um, once we realize that, hey, like perfect is something that you build up to over the metaphorical 26 miles, then you give yourself a lot more space to do it. What are some of the guardrails you put in place to make sure you're not overworking yourself? Yeah, I haven't struggled with it as much recently. And there, I do think place is a big part of it. So we live so close to all these trail systems. Um, I've got a four-year-old kid or three-and-a-half-year-old kid and a 10-month-old German shepherd. So there's enough stuff other than work. Work actually feels like the escape. Um, there's enough stuff outside of work that, that's made it easy. Um, if I rewind before all of that, it was a huge challenge for me because I'm passionate about what I do. I like it. Again, we talk that external validation feels good. Um, some of it is just experienced by failing. So like burning the candle at both ends and realizing where that gets me. Um, and then having done that enough times, it's just about setting boundaries and not breaking them and knowing that how you feel in the moment isn't how you're going to feel in the future. So the example there is maybe there's a boundary to put the devices away at 7 p.m. In 6.58, you're rolling, retweets, likes, you're cranking out the article, like you just want to respond to 10 more emails, you feel great. So in that moment, it makes sense to do it. But if you get into that pattern for a month or two months or a year, you're going to start to feel pretty exhausted, empty, and burnt out. So it's about being able to envision your future self and then honor that boundary that you set. I'm curious about the coaching aspect of your life now. And how do people typically come to you to start coaching? Why do they choose you and why do you start working with people on your end? Yeah, so most people come to me because they've read my books or at the very least a handful of articles that I've written or they sometimes someone's just heard me on a few podcasts and, and, and they liked my approach. Um, so I'm very fortunate that there's a lot of selection bias in the people that reach out to me. So they already have to have some kind of resonance with, with what I'm saying or what I'm writing. Um, and then in terms of how I choose to work with people, this gets back to my own boundary setting. So my coaching practice only has 15 clients at any given time because um, this is what allows me to have time and energy to write and to research and to read all the things that go into writing. So um, I have a wait list and clients retire. Some relationships don't work out. Some people get promoted into roles where they don't need coaching or they feel they don't need coaching, what have you. Um, and then just the next person on the wait list. I, I, I'm pretty agnostic as to who I take just because I've been surprised that in the past I thought people that would be like perfect fits were not and people that I was tempted to be like, eh, I don't really think so have turned out to be five-year clients. Why, what is the most common problem that you see people come to you with? In, in coaching? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a sense of restlessness and not being as excited about their craft as they once were, not knowing why, wanting desperately to take a rest, but when they try to rest, not being able to rest because they're anxious that they're not working. So it's a feeling of being stuck. 
I used to love this thing. I'm not sure I love it anymore. I really think I need a rest, but if I try to take a rest, I make it about two hours and then I'm like back doing the thing. So Brad, can you help me untangle what's going on here? Um, that would be the first reason. The second reason is people who are just crushing and they're like, I want to keep getting better. Like you are speaking my language. There is no mountaintop. It's all about learning and growth along the way. And if I fall back six steps, I want you there when I fall back. And if I move ahead six steps, that's great too. Um, it's just so nice to meet a like-minded person. So like, come help me walk the path. So I'd say those are the two buckets. Is the second bucket more difficult? What's, which one's more difficult for you personally as a coach? I actually don't separate them that much because I think that the first bucket is a part of walking the path. And I think anyone that's crushing right now will eventually not be crushing. Um, so my approach is like holistic enough to, to say, you know, here's where you are um, right now and, and there will be ups and downs and I'm here with you for it. Um, that might sound a little esoteric when the rubber meets the road. The only real framework I use in coaching is I have three big buckets with any client and we don't have to work in these buckets proportionally. We just make sure to never leave any of them behind. And the first one is what I call foundational practices. So these are things that regardless of what's happening at work, what's happening in your life, they help you come to whatever it is, you know, solid, whole, ready to roll. Uh, these are things like sleep, movement, nutrition, community, um, for some people, meditation, for other people, it might be art, but really things that refuel you and give you the energy to show up at whatever you're doing. Um, the second bucket is long-term. So here's where I am now. Here's where I want to be in three years, five years, 10 years. Here's the skill chasm in between. Help me close those gaps. And then the third bucket is acute. And this is, I've got this thorny issue that I can't solve, or I've got a board meeting and I'm not sure how to approach this investor. Um, even as concrete is I've got this pitch deck uh, for a potential investor and I can't really communicate what I think I want to on slide six. Can we work through that? Um, it's what I really like about coaching. We go you know, pretty meta and broad to here's the kind of leader I want to be or here's the kind of creator I want to be in 10 years all the way down to help me with this today. And then my job as a coach is to make sure that we just never completely forget about any of those buckets. How do you deal with the situation in such a fast moving world of the second bucket where someone's three year, five year, 10 year vision may change a year into it because they see a new thing that really a path they need to go down now. How do you think about the, the fast changing world and the need for a five year, 10 year vision? I try to think it, about it less about the thing and more about why the thing. Okay. So you asked me about values. I do think that values, while they change and they shift, there tends to be some pretty like recurring themes over time. Now, people have epiphanies, right? Like you're in the church, you leave the church. Um, you come out of the closet. Like things can happen that totally blow up the values that you thought that you had or the values that you portrayed to the world. For most people, though, there's some continuity. And I think what changes is the thing that's going to work in service of those values. What doesn't necessarily change is the values themselves. So you might really think that you want to be an engagement manager at you know Boston Consulting Group. And a year later, you're like, I'm not sure if that's the thing for me. I actually think I want to join this startup. Well, that's okay. Let's get back to whatever things that you care about, what makes you happy, 
What do you want to practice day in and day out? And then let's evaluate which opportunity allows you to do those things. What's been the most rewarding thing or situation or experience about being a coach? Just getting to watch people be resilient and bounce back from challenging times um, and do great things. Uh, I love it. Like I get more nervous about my clients than myself. Um, so there's like a, there's, there's a real level of connection with the, the people that I coach and, and being in their corner. And it's not like I have all the answers. If anything, I don't have really any answers. My, my whole role is to ask good questions and then to help people figure out for themselves what makes sense. Um, and if I can ask just a few questions that really lead to insight that then someone can go and change something in their, in their craft and improve, um, that's so rewarding. What makes for the best type of question when coaching? Not to accept the surface answer. So there's this, um, fairly common strategy of five whys. You know, so why aren't you sleeping? Um, well, uh, my mind's racing. Well, why is your mind racing? Because of this challenge at work. Well, why do you have that challenge at work? And ultimately, the reason that you're not sleeping is because, like, you're in the wrong function at your job. Or because instead of writing stuff down in a notebook, you try to hold on to all of it in your brain. So it's like six levels down from the actual thing. That's a very simple example. Um, but I think the most important question is tell me more. Because as a coach, that is uncomfortable territory because you want to ask a question, you want to get a response, and then they're paying you. So you want to be able to offer some kind of advice or some kind of counsel. So being able to pause and say, eh, tell me more, like giving people the space to really go um, deeper into trying to find the root problem. It's the hardest thing to ask. Because you can face great imposter syndrome. Like, why is this person paying me all this money if all I'm saying is tell me more? But it's also the most important question that you can ask. Has there been a situation or situations when you felt inadequate as a coach? And how did you deal with that, if so? Yeah, all the time. Uh, you know, I'm young. I'm 35. Um, so I'm generally coaching people that are older than me, that are more experienced than me that are in positions of power that I haven't held. And I just remind myself that, A, everyone's making it up as they go. That's a universal truth. B, it's not in my nature to try to do this, so I don't. But like going above and beyond to not hide any of these things. Like I've never been um, a leader of a big department, so I don't know how to lead a big department. What I do is research and write on these principles and what I can help you with is thinking through how to apply these principles to your work. But I can't tell you what to do in your work. All I can coach towards are these principles. So really wearing that on my sleeve and kind of unloading myself of the need to try to be something that I'm not is super helpful. And realizing that if you don't have imposter syndrome in a situation like this, I think that's a much bigger risk than having it. So you have imposter syndrome. You... And just to a healthy degree, I'd say, right. Like, no right. doubt or no, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to teach this four time Olympian? Then you're, you're like, got to be pretty narcissistic to think that you have all the answers. Um, so just accepting that, Hey, actually like this is a sign of humility. Mm -hmm. Um, and then being really clear with clients 
that here's what I know and here's what I think I'm decent at or good at. And then here's what I don't know. And this is where I'm going to need to lean on you. Makes sense. So I'd like to shift now to your process when writing and Mm -hmm. your process when putting together words. What does that look like? Do you have a set practice or routine, anything like that? And, And if so, what does that look like? Yeah. So it starts with reading. So I read a ton and I read from pretty diverse genres. And whenever I read, I read with a, um, a pen and I'm holding up, I know listeners can't see, and a stack of like uh, sticky 3M cards. And when I come to a passage or an idea or a piece of research that really resonates with me or that I can connect to something or that I'm curious about, I'll underline the passage And then on the sticky note, I'll write like whatever thought I had. So that could be like fascinating research on ego development. It could be beautiful sentence on addiction. Um, It could be exploring the paradox of being enough and getting better. So like little mental reminders. And then I stick the cards on upside down. So whenever I pick up a book, I've got like this Rolodex of little cards with ideas. And then I'm, I'm, oops, sorry about that. I'm pretty meticulous. I organize all my books by topic matter. So then I just go live my life out in the world. I observe things. I read magazines. Um, I follow current events enough. And if an idea gets brewing to offer a perspective in writing about an event, I'll say, well, what are like the themes that I want to explore? And then I'll go to my bookshelf and I'll go to that section of my bookshelf. And then I'll start looking at the little notes inside each book and piecing together a hypothesis or a narrative or some kind of argument that I want to make and having all the research literally at my fingertips. Um, For me, writing is always very easy because that work upstream of it makes it so easy. So when I sit down to write, I like have a bevy of wisdom to draw on. I have the right experts to cite or to quote. Um, and the idea is generally formed. And then, um, I guess the last thing that perhaps makes writing so easy for me is my first drafts suck. So the reason that writing's easy is because I'm terrible at it when I try, but I don't let that get in the way. And I've realized this about myself. I am a terrible first draft writer. I am a wonderful editor. So I no longer hold myself to any bar other than write a thousand words. Now, this works for me. It doesn't work for other people. Other people really stress. But by saying I need to write a thousand words in the next two hours, I don't have to like get obsessed about quality. I just vomit on the page. I wake up the next morning with fresh eyes. Gets a little bit better. Later that afternoon, revisit it a little bit better. The next morning, a little bit better. And after five or six rounds, suddenly this thing that was terrible is a decent enough piece of writing. At what point do you know you have all these index cards, you have all these ideas what point do you say to yourself, okay, this is a book. This is something I'd like to explore in a longer length. Yeah, when I can't stop thinking about it. So sometimes I'll write an essay or an article and it's like out of my system, but there are certain topics that I keep circling back to or that I think that I've exhausted them, but then something happens out in the world or I read something or even just I have a fleeting thought and I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's that angle. And there's just so many angles that can't possibly be contained in a series of articles. Um, That's when I think, huh, like this might be a book. And then um, my process is 100% crowdsourced from people I respect. So I've got like 15 people that I go to and I'm like, hey, here's an idea I want to explore in a book, yay or nay. 
And most of the time it's nay, which is why I've got three books, not, you know, 17 books. Um, You're but, only 35. Yeah, that's true. But every once in a while, like people are like, oh yeah, like I think that could be a book. Um, so I think it's releasing from, again, me needing to have all the answers. That's a common theme. Like I am not at all worried about asking people for help. I try to give help. So I'm not just constantly taking from people, but particularly in the creative process, um, I am very much someone that wants to go to other people that I respect and run ideas by them and get their feedback. And, and that's how I, I eventually would mold like a, a go, no go decision on a book. How do you help someone when you're not in a position necessarily to help them? What I mean by that is like, let's say I want to go and help Ryan Holiday. I can't really help Ryan Holiday, maybe have him on the podcast, but it's, it's a small podcast. So what would you recommend someone, let's say, in their early 20s do to appeal to people? Like you've got some really high-level people giving you book quotes and I'm sure you're friends with. So it's like, how does one help someone that seems like out of their league in terms of who they can help? So the first thing I'd say is test that hypothesis. So you might have an assumption that like you can't get on someone like Ryan Holiday's wavelength, but you need to at least test that assumption. And the second thing I'd say is only do it authentically. So if you are going to try to reach out to someone, I'm not saying you, Danny, I'm saying like the proverbial you listener, if you're going to listen, reach out to Ryan Holiday because like you think it'd be cool to connect with him or you think he might be able to help you, Ryan's going to sniff that out from a mile away. If you genuinely have like a really interesting insight about something that he wrote or a corollary idea and you want to share that with him, my guess is Ryan's going to reply to you within like three hours because he's a good dude interested in interesting ideas. Um, so I think, you know, I, I've, I've tweeted this a bunch of times. It always does well. Like the best way to network is to do good work. So if you try to, if you try to network to me, like that ship has sailed, it's not going to end well. If you are curious and want to engage with other people about things that light you up and that you feel like you have some perspective to offer, then the networking comes as a byproduct of that. Yeah, that, that's really good advice. Could you share a story in which you networked with someone above your league and, and network, quote unquote, not actually network, yeah. but made friends with someone? You were like, whoa, well, how did that happen? Is there anything yeah, that totally. comes to mind? Yeah. Um, and, and even, well, I'll tell you one example from like yesterday. The other thing that I'd say is like, you're going to fail a lot too. So if you reach out to like 20 Ryan holidays, Ryan, if you're listening, sorry, we keep using you, you know, 19 might not give you the light of day. And you might think that they're not giving you the light of day. And maybe half of those 19 are egomaniac narcissists, not Ryan at all. And they're not giving you the light of day. The other nine, they might just not have seen your email because like they're completely overwhelmed. Um, but then that one person does connect with you and that's awesome. So like some of it is realizing that, hey, like you're going to quote unquote fail in this enterprise a lot or you're not going to hear back from people and, and don't take it personally. That's fine. Um, an example of like doing good work being the best kind of networking. So just yesterday, I got an email from someone that um, I emailed back and forth with. She's a former like Olympic caliber triathlete, was having some challenges transitioning out of being a professional athlete to figure out what to do next in her life. And um, I hadn't talked to her about six months. And she sent me an email and said, hey, I know you've got this new book coming out. Do you mind signing a copy for my friend Flora, who like 
thinks that you're like her personal coach. So I've never talked to Flora, but I just have a hypothesis. I'm like, is this Flora Duffy? Flora Duffy just won the gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics. So I did nothing. I wrote these books and I'm like, wait, she thinks that I like, that makes no sense. She's like the world champion. She's the best in the world at this grueling sport. And you know, now I sign a book and now I'm going to have a conversation with Flora Duffy. So part of it is just like that naivety and that innocence. Um, I have not had good experience with, cause uh, you know, I, this stuff's hard to practice. So I'm by no means perfect. There are times when I've gotten into that mindset of, Oh, like if I send the perfect email, I'll get in so-and-so's radar and then like maybe they'll share my work. I've never been successful doing it that way because it, people just sniff it out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's really just about the authenticity coming through, the realness. And the that's what I love about having this podcast as under my own name rather than a topic is I can really talk to people who I connect with personally. And so that is is super important and grateful for you sharing that. You know, yeah, I'm actually, it's funny. I'm going back to, um, to the email that you sent me cause I hadn't heard of you. So like I was going to use you as my own example. I forgot exactly what you said. I'm trying to find it, but like clearly you, you did it really up. well cause here we are. I'm enjoying talking to you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, well, I'd like to talk to you about your OCD because yeah. I, th- I think you've been open about this and I admire you so much for having the courage to talk about it, particularly as a coach, particularly as someone who is in the public eye to some respect. So I'd love for you to just dive deep on that story, how it occurred, what the steps you took, because someone listening right now could be in that situation. So yeah, thank you so much for asking. Um, All right. So the first thing that I'll say is that uh, OCD, short for obsessive compulsive disorder, is very often misportrayed in the popular culture. So most people, myself included, before I knew that I had OCD, would think of OCD as someone that is a neat freak or someone that needs to wash their hands a lot or to have everything organized. Um, You might even say like, oh, I'm so OCD because you want to have a checklist. That is not what OCD is at all. That is just an organized person or somebody that's a neat freak, somebody that likes to have plans. Uh, Clinical OCD is defined as a recurring intrusive thought or feeling that then you have some kind of compulsion to try to reassure yourself to make yourself feel better. So in the case of a hand washer, it's a very simple, concrete example The intrusive thought or feeling might be, oh, I think I got a germ on my hand and it could make me sick. And then the compulsion to try to feel better is washing your hands. And if you have that thought a million times a day, you're going to wash your hands a million times a day instead of learning to live with the uncertainty that, hey, maybe there will be some germs. Maybe you will get sick. So that is very like garden variety, typical OCD. That's not what I experienced. So my intrusive thoughts were very much around um, existentialism and the meaning of life. So I would have thoughts that, hey, we're all going to die anyways. So what's the point of doing anything? What's the meaning of life? And there is no answer to that question. Like two plus two equals four. The meaning of life does not equal X. It's totally uncertain. And now I can talk to you about this in a very rational way. But when I'm having those thoughts... They are accompanied by like full body um, shots of anxiety and despair. And my compulsion, my reassurance was trying to answer the question. 
So I would spend hours and days engaged in this loop of life might be meaningless. What's the point of all this? Well, I better come up with an answer. And whatever answer I come up with, it might be good for half an hour, but then my brain could be like, well, what if that's wrong? Or what if that's not the meaning? And it's a pretty quick spiral down to just being completely trapped in this vicious cycle of question that you feel in like your bones that you need to have an answer for, trying to find the answer, trying to reassure yourself, and then just rinse and repeat the cycle over and over again. Um, I think while I'm talking about OCD, it's, it's important because there are lots of themes that are also relatively taboo. Um, so one theme, particularly amongst new parents, is you have the thought that like you're going to smother your baby or you're going to throw your kid out the window. And then that's associated with so much anxiety. Oh, how could I have that thought? Like, what does that say about me? And then you try to tell yourself all these reasons that you'd never throw your kid out the window or like you'd lock the window. Um, another common taboo one is um, OCD around violence. So you might be walking down the street and you have a thought that I could just push this person into traffic. And then you go, oh, what does that say about me? I'm a terrible person or how could I ever do that? And then suddenly you're scared to walk down the street. So part of what makes OCD hard to diagnose is a lot of people are scared to go get help because they think that they're fundamentally broken. So um, it's just super important to share that because if you actually like were a psychopath and was going to push the guy into traffic, you wouldn't have that anxiety about it. So it's the feeling of anxiety of brokenness and then trying to avoid being in that situation um, that can that can manifest as OCD. So in my case, I'm I'm very very fortunate that I like have not stigmatized mental health. I'm in a community where mental health is not stigmatized, and the onset of my OCD was so stark and rapid that there was like no question. It's like holy shit, my brain's fucked up. I need to go see a psychiatrist. So everything was fine one day, and I have a massive panic attack. I become convinced that something is wrong with my health. So now I'm still kind of like living in maybe it's OCD, but maybe not. Things start to get better. One day I'm on a road trip. I'm alone in the car, and I have the thought, like, what's the point of life? I might as well drive off the road. And massive anxiety, not a thought of like actually wanting to do it, but also just like so trapped. And then my, my next thought was like, oh my God, like, am I actually going to do this? Well, what's the meaning of life? I better figure it out on and on and on. And I got home from that drive and I, I just said like to my wife, Caitlin, I think I'm really sick. I need to call a psychiatrist. And fortunately, the psychiatrist that I saw had experience in OCD and was able to say like, you're not suicidal. You're not depressed. Like this is OCD. And I remember feeling such relief when he said that because I was convinced that like I was like going to kill myself. And that was part of this OCD, right? It's like, oh, life is meaningless. Like maybe I'll kill myself, getting scared about that. And then I was on a journey of about nine months of um, weekly therapy um, and, and ultimately got to the other side where um, I can say now it's pretty well managed. How did that impact your relationship with your wife? Uh, it was hard. I mean, hard on her, particularly to see me like this. Also hard because a huge part of the therapy is not getting reassurance. So if I went to my wife to be like, Caitlin, like I'm, I'm having these like thoughts, like 
I don't really mean that, do I? Or like, there's got to be meaning to life, right? She couldn't reassure me by saying yes. She'd just have to be like, maybe, maybe not. And again, this is all under the the coaching of a therapist that specializes in OCD. Um, So it's very hard for her, too, because like the normal inclination is to support someone, tell them they're going to be okay. And there was obviously some of that. But that's also a way to get reassurance. Um, Instead of just me learning to live with the uncertainty that like maybe there's meaning to life, maybe there's not like I shouldn't be my whole life shouldn't be obsessing over this question. What's something that you know now that you wish you could have told yourself in the first nine months of going to therapy for this? It's such a good question. Um, Just be kind to yourself. I think that there was a part of me that was... I don't want to say ashamed, but that felt like it was a problem to fix beyond just wanting to like have better days. Like, oh, like this can't be who I really am. And now I think I'd go back and be like, yeah, like this is a leave on your tree. It's not all of you, but like it's a part of you. That's okay. Like it's coming along for the ride. Um, I wish I could have told myself that. Was it difficult to be open with this journey or was it something that you went back and forth on? How did you come to the decision to say, I'm going to tell people about this? Yeah, I can tell you exactly how. So I was probably six or seven months into um, to this, maybe not even, maybe it was like four months. And my first book, Peak Performance had no experience of OCD when writing that or when it was published, um, was doing very well. It it was a a commercial success by that time. And I was on um, what was supposed to be a vacation with my brother in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the OCD was really bad. There was nothing fun about this trip. And I remember being in a coffee shop getting a sandwich and and pulling up my computer and having an email from this 26-year-old dude being like, I'm such a big fan. You're only 30. Seems like you have like everything together. You wrote this book. Like, here's my story. What advice do you have for me? Meanwhile, I'm completely like sunk in one of OCD's terrible waves. And I remember thinking, I can't do this anymore. There was so much cognitive dissonance between what I was experiencing on the inside and how people perceived me on the outside. So... My choice was either done being public, which meant done writing, or tell this story. And with the help of my therapist, the answer that I came to was ultimately tell the story. Um, Telling the story, I wasn't worried that people would think less of me. Um, From what I just said, like OCD is pretty weird, and it can be, so it's hard to understand. So I, I guess I relied on my ability as a writer to try to communicate like what it is. But it was not really that. It was more so, and and this gets into the irrationality of like mental illness. I was scared that if I wrote about my experience with OCD, it would be like I was claiming victory or like claiming some control over it. It's like, oh, I'm going to publish this essay. People are going to read it. And then it's like, well, I'm not over it. I'm like, 
I'm living with this for the rest of my life. Is that okay? And ultimately that became a part of my therapy because that's just facing another fear, which is you might write this story and people might read it and love it. And then you might be super sick for the next six years, but like, you're going to have to find out. Um, so I really credit my therapist with pushing me to publish this and and to write this essay that I wrote back in, I think it's 2018 or maybe early 2019. Um, that was like my first public speaking about this, I guess not speaking, excuse me, writing. Um, and you know, like I learned that what people say is really true. It became my most popular essay and not like in a performative way, like, you know, it was like people genuinely empathized and you realize that so many people are going through something, whether it is depression, grief, anxiety, bipolar, like I got notes from all these people, some of whom I knew, some of whom are world-class at what they do, being like, oh my gosh, like me too. Um, And that made me feel good and not in a way like, oh, look, I've helped these people, but in a way of like, oh, like we're all just like brothers and sisters in this together. And there's a lot of solace in, in sharing something uncomfortable and learning that you truly aren't alone. Why specifically did your therapist push you to publish the article? Because not writing it would have been avoidance. And avoidance just makes the beast grow stronger. So if you think about it, again, in very simple terms, if you have a fear of snakes, even if they can't hurt you, then the best thing that you can do is force yourself to be in a room of snakes. And you're going to panic at first and it's going to suck, but eventually you're going to settle in. And on the 200th trip to that room, you're going to fall asleep because you know the snakes can't hurt you. In my case, I had developed such a discomfort with OCD that I was scared that by writing about it, OCD was going to hurt me. It was like stepping into a room with it in public. And you can't run away from the snake. You have to touch the snake. So in this case, I had to touch that fear, which was writing about it. How would you rank that decision to publish that article based on difficulty and are there any other situations you could talk about that were more difficult or how is how did that rank on the difficulty of all decisions you've ever made it's definitely up towards the the top for sure um so much of the the therapy for ocd is rooted in um it's called exposure and response prevention So you're not, you might be familiar, I'll tell listeners, you basically want to expose yourself to the thing that causes your distress and then prevent the reassuring response. So in my case, my therapist had me read a ton of nihilism and then not try to figure out like why they were wrong. Cause I was scared that there's no like inherent meaning to life. So she's like, great. Like you're going to start reading a ton of nihilism. Um, It takes a very skilled therapist and or psychiatrist to be so confident in this diagnosis. But when there was a week that I was scared, like I was going to drive off the road, my therapist had me go on two hour drives every day. Those were really hard moments. Um, It sounds so crazy and irrational because by definition, like it is crazy and irrational. That's mental illness. Um, But in those moments, just getting in the car was a hard decision because my brain had utterly convinced me that I might drive off the road. Wow. What do you think separates a good therapist from a great therapist? Hmm. 
Oh, I wish you could ask Brooke. That's my therapist. I mean, I, I credit her with saving my quality of life. Um, there was a time when I was just absolutely terrified to like start doing this kind of exposure work because I thought I was actually going to do the thing. If you're convinced you're actually going to drive off the road, you do not want to get in a car. And Brooke, my therapist, she saw it for what it is, which is like classic OCD. And not to get too in the weeds on mental health, but like if you're, if, if you're suffering with depression or suicidal ideation, you have those thoughts and they're actually really appealing to you. You're not scared of them. Whereas what makes OCD so easy, I guess, to diagnose is like you have these thoughts, but then you're terrified that you're actually going to do the thing. So her telling me that I will take complete responsibility if you actually like drive the car off the road, it will be on me. Like I'll take responsibility. So just really owning it, being that confident in her diagnosis of what was going on and the path forward. Um, in that moment, like that's what took her from good to great. Now she's super skilled. I also saw a psychiatrist that she consulted with. Like this wasn't an easy decision by that point, looking back, and I've asked her this, she had to be so sure that like, oh, like this is just OCD and therapists that, that, that treat this, they almost joke that like their patients think like the world is ending, but objectively, like their patients are totally fine. They just have to go get them to do these things that their brain's telling them not to. What is something you're currently struggling with? So I think whenever a book comes out, I find it hard to toe the line between allowing myself to get really excited and enjoy the process and take in the positive feedback and celebrate, but not step totally into the candy store. So I don't think that completely tuning everything out and just going camping in the woods for two weeks and then coming back and pretending that you didn't publish a book is healthy. I don't think refreshing your author sales rank 10 times a day is healthy. It's very hard to be able to find that in between. It's easy to disappear. It's easy to go all in and eat candy for two weeks. It's hard to like taste the peanut M&Ms, savor them, enjoy them, but not eat yourself sick. Where do you find the, do you, do you look to mentors or guidance or people who have done it and published more books? How do you come to that conclusion? How do you find the best way forward? Yeah, I think that there's a part of it that's, that's looking to mentors um, and realizing that everyone kind of goes through this. Uh, and then there is just really trying to make it fun. And fun can mean like going out of my way to make sure that I'm with people that I care about um, hanging out this week in, in a COVID safe way, but like hike schedule, like weight training, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then not to judge myself if I do like get caught up one day and like, is it going to make the bestseller list? Is it not realizing from every author, like the freaking Zen master authors go through this. So if it's also just an occupational hazard, it's a part of the job. And okay, like, you know, if the first book you spend two weeks obsessing about it, the second book you spend a week and a half, maybe this book I'll only spend a week, that's a victory. 
Yeah. Looking at your past self and looking how far you've come is, is really important. And then before we go to a close, I'd like to finally ask you, what are you most grateful for today? I think this conversation, man. Um, I've enjoyed this. I, I, I listened to a few of your podcasts to prepare. So like I knew that, you know, you were a pro, but I never talked to you before and you never know stepping into an interview. Um, and maybe of like the 25 questions you asked, one or two had been asked to me before, but the other 22 were, were fresh. So I'm really grateful that I got to show up and, and talk about interesting things with you today. I'm really grateful. For I'm not just sucking up to the teacher. Like seriously, because, <laughs> nah, you know, you. book launch, you're doing all these podcasts. Um, and the last thing that you want is to show up and to like be asked the same 10 questions and give the same stock answers. And everyone asked me about my OCD. Everyone asked me about my coaching. Um, but like, what makes a good therapist? What makes a great therapist? These are questions that no one's asked me. So I, I really appreciate you taking, taking the time and, and honing your craft. Thank you, man. I work at this relentlessly and I know that the things you do, you treat the same way. So I appreciate your kind words and I'm, I'm really grateful for this conversation as well. Where can we send people? I know I'll be purchasing the practice of groundedness, but where can we send people to buy it and follow you further and connect? Yeah. Uh, thanks, man. So the book you can get anywhere, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org, your local bookshop, uh, pretty much anywhere there's books. And the place that I live most on the internet is Twitter. Um, and my handle there is at B Stahlberg. Awesome. And we'll put those below. Thank you, Brad. Really appreciate you taking the time and the kind words. It means the world. Yeah. Thank you, man. Beautiful people. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Brad Stolberg. And I would love to know also on Twitter, your favorite takeaway from that episode. So just at Hey Danny Miranda on Twitter and, and let me know the number one takeaway you got from that episode. And if you would like to help the show grow, just tell somebody you know about it. That would mean the world to me. And I would appreciate that tremendously if you got to this point in the episode. Other than that, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening. I'm extremely grateful for anyone who spends one second or one hour and 10 minutes listening to me speak. Either way, it means the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I will see you in the next episode. Peace.